to be back this evening. It was a good time of rest and uh, always sweet fellowship. And uh, we also had some serious conversations there in the back room earlier talking about uh, the theme that we've been pursuing these days together and sharing thoughts and um, encouragement and uh, thinking of ministries or things that could, should be done or um, so we are back in Isaiah that's where we're going to pick it up Isaiah 14 I'm glad the way the Lord is, um, is is leading us through these things we have together. It's uh, what we are, you know, posting on on Facebook in terms of advertising, and uh, so we have this picture, and uh, the theme for Wednesday will be finished on one session. So uh, we would have to have, have had. Two posters or something similar to. Uh, so, I thought you know it would be good for us to postpone it till Wednesday. Um, oh Lord, what are we to do? And so we'll be returning on that theme Wednesday. And today, we are connecting some things that were started actually the previous Sunday, and then. So, um, we started out this morning, uh, again, focusing on where we are in history, uh, where we are especially in our civilization. We're not at the beginning, we're not at the top, we're way below. And we noticed uh, something important, I believe, this morning, that we are really at the end of a civilization, which is really... Uh, already ended uh, and we are seeing the beginning of a new one uh, we are actually at a point where this new one is taking uh, is taking place is being developed is being pursued and uh, and we called it uh, the the last civilization perhaps or the ultimate um, that's the way the Bible will, you know, portray it. But we'll we'll go there towards the end of our thoughts uh, this evening. Um, we saw that this uh, uh, drift towards a one-world government uh, it's always been taking place throughout history at the price of. Uh, the lives of millions that have been massacred in the meantime. As we said today, genocides have not been starting in the 20th century. They have been going on for a long time. Um, and the question was asked at, at some point this morning, what drives these world conquerors? Uh, to do what they do. Who is behind this? Can we explain the whole thing 
just in in terms of mankind. Um, and, uh, And the Bible will answer, no, you can't. You can't explain evil just in terms of man. You cannot explain the magnitude that of the evil that can take place on earth, that is, it's been taking place through thousands of years just in terms of, of, of human beings. To understand, you must take into consideration the other aspect. Uh, who, is, who is behind um, all of these things? And so, um, it will take a long time to look at all the oh, most of the evidence the Bible give us, gives us for what we're talking about. But there are some strategic texts or chapters. And Isaiah 14 is certainly one of these. Um, we noticed in this, uh, in this word, uh, spoken to the king of Babylon, uh, who has raised himself up and has been you know, pursuing this conquering of the nations, uh, you know, ad- adopting a, an evil uh, approach of you know, destruction and extermination and exploitation. But at one point, as this king has been, has been and will be humbled, this is a word of prophecy. This is not taking uh, place yet. <laughs> they say this is a prophetic message. Uh, but at some some point, look at what it says in verse 12 through 14. How are you falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? You who weakened the nations again. You were so powerful. You were such a conqueror. You conquered nations. You exterminated peoples. You wanted to take over the, uh, the whole earth. <laughs> but, verse 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now these are some some words. They are dis- descriptive of the sentiments that inspired the, the, the heart, the soul, the mind of this king. Um, at the same time, however, somehow they seem to describe someone beyond or be, behind, uh, behind this king. Uh, verse 12, you are fallen from heaven. O Lucifer, that means shining one. Lucifer, shining one. Son of the morning, 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, now notice the language, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God in the language are a representation of angels. Uh, So this is not just speaking about uh, the physical world, but it's actually the spiritual world. Uh, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. Again, he's speaking about the angelic reality. He wants to sit on the top of the angelic congregations and be the ruler, the divine ruler. Uh, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and then ultimately, you see, that's his ultimate desire. I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. Of course, I don't need to remind you that these are exactly the thoughts that Satan communicated to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. You will be like God. You will be divine. And uh, and if we go back to history and read history, then we can see how uh, uh, that this is exactly how these emperors felt. Uh, the cult of the emperor. You will remember, I'm sure you have heard this before, that in the times of the apostles, uh, you could not say that Christ was kurios, was Lord. And if you said that, uh, that you will be punished. And in some regions, you'll be punished by death because that would be uh, considered like a crime against the emperor who was to be recognized as the only Lord, the only kurios. Uh, we have historical evidence for this. Um, the cult of the empire, the cult of the pharaohs, they all felt they were divine. They wanted to be worshipped. If we had time, I don't want to really focus on this a whole lot. This evening I would like for the sermon to to go to another subject in just a second, or to go into a different direction in just a second. But think think of the of Daniel chapter three, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be built and built for himself uh, so that all the nations that were under his rule at the sound of the instruments every time the instrument sounded they were to bow down in towards the direction of the image and worship Nebuchadnezzar now history is full of this but the main point is that behind this man that have been pursuing this uh, conquest of the world, one world domination, there is someone else that inspires them, that drives them. To seek what? To seek uh, totalitarian power, complete power, complete control, and especially divinity. Divinity. Omnipotency. Um, 
Now, there is another passage of Scripture. There are actually many of them. But if you go to Ezekiel in chapter 18, you should be again familiar with this Scripture as well. Ezekiel 18. Sorry, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. Now, this is spoken against the king of Tyre. Uh, Not as popular or as great as the king of Babylon. (laughs) And yet a king, uh, a very rich and prosperous king of a very prosperous city of antiquity. But look at what we read from uh, verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying... The son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. So you see again, the prophets did not send their messages only to Israel. (laughs) They addressed nations as well as they addressed the kings of the nations. These were messages sent to the kings of the great nations of the world. And notice they were messages of challenge by God and in addressing them God is also addressing the one behind them so God says this to the king of Tyre because your heart is lifted up again the word lifted up exalted puffed up and you say I am God I sit on the seat of the gods in the midst of the seas Yet you are a man and not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. You see, we we meet in all of these statements, and we could produce others from the scriptures, the same uh, situation. These kings, they want to be divine. They claim divinity. They aspire To be lifted up on high and recognized as gods. They want to be divine. And you can very well see why idolatry uh, went hand in hand with this type of situation. Because the the pharaohs and the emperors were part of the Olympus. (laughs) They were part of the, uh, the cult of idolatry. They were... Among the gods, the were to be worshipped is the cult of the emperor. But, yet, if you will go down to verse 11, lamentation over the king of Tyre. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now, this is not a so much a word of judgment as a lamentation. This is a, we would say, a mourning. 
the prophet is mourning over the king of Tyre, or actually mourning over well, the one behind the king of uh, the king of Tyre. And the prophet is to mourn the one behind the king of Tyre, uh, of Tyre, because of what that one used to be. He used to be what? Satan, who is behind the king of Tyre, used to be what? You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You see, that cannot be said of any human being. This cannot be speaking of the king of Tyre, who was an idolater. And never knew any better, I'm afraid. And by the way, he was a sinner and was always a sinner. But in addressing the king of Tyre, Ezekiel is addressing the one behind him. And it says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. And who was in Eden, the garden of God? Satan. Every precious stone was your covering. Uh, the sardis, topaz, and diamond, and beryl, and onyx, and jasper, sapphire, uh, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Imagine this. This is God creating this amazing angel. There was great joy when he was created. And the prophet is lamenting, is mourning over what became of this angel. You were anointed, the anointed cherub. You were the anointed cherub. See, this is an angel. The anointed cherub means uh, a very special, particular, uh, exalted angel uh, who covers. I established you. This is God speaking. I established you. And because it is God speaking, we can even say, the word is amazing, that this is the mourning of God over this individual. Uh, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect. Again, that word cannot be describing the king of Tyre. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Uh, and this is the biblical doctrine. This is the biblical doctrine. And this is one of those passages that can be very helpful when we think of the origin of evil. How can God create something perfect and that uh, some a perfect in, individual uh, get corrupted and become sinful? Well, this is exactly what the Bible is saying. God created this angel, this anointed cherub, perfect in every way, until iniquity, evil, was found in his heart. 
uh, his his nature was twisted with this desire to be exalted, to be not just a mere angel. He wanted more. He wanted to be God. He wanted to have complete sovereignty, complete control. Um, then, if we read on, it looks like it goes back to describing the king of Tyre. But in the midst of this description of the king of Tyre, uh, there is this lamentation that it is very clearly about someone who is behind him and that it's moving him. And so what we can see from the scripture is that um, the desire of these mighty rulers that want to conquer the world uh, is uh, aspi- inspired in them by the devil himself. Uh, he wants to be like God. He wants to control the whole of humanity. And he has been all, all through these millenniums, all through these centuries. He's been trying to get there. He's been trying to get there. To conquer everything through these men who pledge allegiance to him. Who surrender their soul to him. We, should, we would say they would sell their soul to him. And he uses them like puppets. To, to get to where he wants to go. To have complete control over humanity. To create a system of evil by which everybody will be under his control. Uh, again, I would point you to Daniel chapter 10 that was mentioned uh, this morning by Paul. Uh, in chapter 10... Um, let us go there. It's such an important text, actually. Uh, chapter 10. And uh, let us begin with verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision. <laughs> it's like Paul when he was converted. But a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves, to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Now, Daniel here is describing this vision that he had. These are such powerful words of the what we will call the prophetic experience. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. While I was speaking this word to me, while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart 
to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But, now notice the expression, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now notice this is most certainly describing a spiritual battle. God is sending his angel to Daniel to reveal to Daniel what will happen in the future. But he did not arrive to Daniel immediately because he was attacked and withstood. By who? By whom? Well, he calls him the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Um, most certainly he's speaking of spiritual forces that are behind the kingdom of Persia. But he is also speaking individually. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. And so much so that I needed the help of a more powerful angel to be able to pull through and get to you. And his name is Michael. Now the, Bi the Bible elsewhere speaks of the engagements between Satan and Michael. Remember the letter of Judas, for example, and other scriptures as well. Um, so we are tying all this together. This is the way the Bible views reality. Of course, this can never be you know, talked about in Parliament or you know, at the Senate or Congress. <laughs> Uh, that's that's not part of of the you know the dealings there, but this is the the view of Scripture. This is the only way actually to explain, understand, and explain the horror, the global the global horror that has been taking place in human history. Now, again, uh, I'm sure that many will laugh at this. Uh, when we speak of Satan, when we speak of the devil, when we speak of the evil one. But uh, you know, people left to their own destruction because if, if any generation uh, didn't have the right to laugh about the devil, it's just our generation. After all that we have seen and all the evil that we have done, uh, I mean, there are documentaries about the concentration camps uh, and the bulldozers have pulled all these dead bodies into mass graves and uh, children and men and women and, um, and just these very days for a project of ours I was studying the genocide that was taking place in Croatia in between 1941 and 1945, actually, uh, where uh, Croatian Catholics, uh, the, the the fascist labor, uh, working with uh, the Catholic priest, 
uh, he slaughtered uh, about uh, 800,000 Serbs, Orthodox Serbs. Uh, What they, if you read the testimonies of what was happening there, it's just horrible. As soon as the fascist rule of Croatia came into power, within five weeks they had slaughtered 180,000 Serbs. And the massacres would take place in the streets, in the fields, in the houses, in the schools, in the churches. I mean, there were bands of fascists that would go around uh, cutting people to pieces. Uh, I mean, what we have seen of ISIS is almost nothing compared to what they did in those five weeks. And then they went on. Hundreds of thousands were slaughtered. Uh, they would actually... Uh, they would actually torture people for hours and hours on end. They would cut their tongues and pull out their eyes and make necklaces with people's eyes and um, you know, tear people apart. They would cut the, the breast of women. And um, You read the accounts and it's, uh, you say, how in the world? And what they did not do to children, they impaled children. You know what that means. In Pauling, uh, there are you know books even in, of course in English about uh, what happened there. But of all people and of all generations, we cannot laugh when the Bible speaks of the devil and the Bible speaks of Satan, because only in this way you can understand uh, the horror that we've been able to practice and perpetrate through history. So we don't laugh. Christians don't laugh. Christians take this very seriously. And uh, (coughs) so there are so many pieces of information in the Bible that will help us to understand what has been actually taking place. Have you noticed, for example, that Um, all of these kings, even in the Bible, they were surrounded by all sorts of magicians and sorcerers, for example. You remember Moses, you know, in Genesis, uh, in Exodus chapter 5, you know, beginning there. uh, You know, Moses does his miracle, and the sorcerers of of Pharaoh did the same thing through their magic. Uh, these were people that surrounded the court of the kings, of the emperors, and were counselors, advisors, <laughs> that told them what to do or how to scheme in their evil schemes. Uh, you talk about demon-possessed people, and Nebuchadnezzar had the same thing. Read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3. <laughs> uh, So you see, there's been an influence that worked within these men, or sometimes women, but there's also been an outside influence that uh, uh, the devils used 
to guide their plans and schemes, their criminal schemes. But again, I don't want to dwell too long on this because I think that there is a, there is another aspect we need to consider, to consider at least to be able to breathe a little bit <laughs> and regain some uh, some hope. Um, and so I would ask you to go to Matthew in chapter four, what I would consider a very uh, pivotal passage to understand actually what happens. <coughs> now from verses 1 all the way to verses 11 we have here a description of the temptation of Jesus. And there is a portion here that uh, it will be very helpful to us tonight. Now, before we get there, however, let us read in context. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What was this about? Now remember that the Son of Man had become flesh. He had humbled himself. Um, <laughs> Immediately, I would have you to notice that the movement of the heart of God is one of humility. It's one of humility. Jesus comes down. He, come, he humbles himself. And this will be a wonderful thing to see. But what was implied in the incarnation of Christ, in the, in the heart of the servant of, of the Father, Part of what was implied in the Incarnation was that Jesus would not make use of the powers inherent in His divine nature to help Himself, to make His situation less difficult. You see, He surrendered that. He set that aside. Uh, according to what we see in Scripture and in, in our church, we, we spent uh, several months, actually, I think the best part of a year, to consider the humility of God, this amazing but forgotten doctrine of the humility of God. And then, of course, we, we uh, approached passages such as this, but when we came to the Incarnation, Part of his humility was just this. Christ came to live among us as a man. He was God. Never uh, stopped being God. What he gave up was the exercise of his divine attributes to serve himself, to help himself. 
have you noticed when the Bible speak, speaks about his performing miracles, the Bible doesn't say that he did it through his own divine power, but he did it through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the only author I've found that uh, approaches uh, and tackles this doctrine is John Owen. <laughs> it's the, the old Puritan John Owen. And he's exactly what he says. I was so happy to read him because uh, it confirmed what I was, you know, seeing the scripture. Uh, so uh, let me give you another indication. Matthew 26. You remember when they came to arrest Christ, what he said. We're not really going to turn there, but just as a reference for your own uh, uh, understanding. But you remember what happened there when they came to arrest him. He said, yeah, Peter, don't, don't fight back. Could I not, at this very moment, pray, ask that a band of angels would be sent to me to set me free? Why didn't I say, you know, uh, that he could have, that he could strike them down? <laughs> because again, what did he say could I ask for? Because he had surrendered the use of his own divine attributes to live among us as, as a man and depend on the Father, his God as a man on the basis of faith and trust and utter obedience. That's it. That's it. And so, and he would pursue that obedience till the end, till he gave his life. And even when he gave his life, he died saying what? Into thy hands I remit my spirit. So, as, the, as Jesus died, he died in perfect trust in the God who had abandoned him into the hands of his enemies for our sake. With this background, we can better understand, I think, what was happening here. When the, verse 3, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you just speak a word... If you are the Son of God, if you are divine, well, make use of that power. Why suffer? Why go hungry? When you can actually turn stones into bread, why this humiliation? Serve yourself. Make life easier for yourself. But he answered and said, It is written, Man, you see, that's how he sees himself. Man. He also saw himself as the son of God. But he did not use the divine attributes to make his life easier. If he had done that, if he had done that, it would not have been a saving work for us. He had to go through as men, all the way through, in every challenge, in any temptation, looking to the Father, obeying the Father, Conquering evil every step of the way for us. Man shall not live by bread alone, 
Bread is not the most important thing. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the important thing is, you know what? Not the word of God, but every tiny bit of a word (laughs) that comes out of the mouth of God. That's more important than money and riches than water and bread to me. This is who I am. This is who I am. So the devil was trying to subtract, to to sidetrack the Lord from a path of humiliation and obedience as, uh, as our Redeemer to... Uh, to have him resort to his own divine attributes to make his life easier and be like a self-servant. So, but let us read on because uh, look at verse uh, 8 at this point. Again, the devil took him upon an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now that to us is a very important statement in the light of what we're talking about. You know why? Because I believe this is more or less the vision that the devil has given to all of these wicked men and all these wicked conquerors that have come and gone through history. If you read the life of Alexander the Great, for example, you know how his career started? Through a vision that he had in Egypt, through a revelation from a, like a sorcerer, a, a, a pagan prophet, that told him that he would be the ruler of the world. That's what history tells us. And Genghis Khan had the same experience in his holy mountain. Uh, He received this revelation from the world of the occult that he would be the ruler of the world. There are wicked visions, not only godly visions, through wicked prophets that have communicated such aspirations. And when this man saw these visions, that they wanted to be the ruler of the world, you know what they did? They bowed down and they sold their soul to Satan to do their his bidding. This is what has taken place. Uh, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now look, these are important words. (laughs) The text does not say that the devil showed him mankind like lost sheep, sinful, lost, without a hope. It was not a vision of, of mankind that would inspire compassion Evangelical compassion. What he showed him was. Were the kingdoms. Of the world and their glory. That word glory is important. Self glory. 
vainglory. And is the kingdoms, is the, uh, is the domination aspect that is primary here. And the devil says, if I will give this to you, if you fall down and worship me. What is actually saying here? He's saying to the one whom he knows is the son of God, to bow down and worship him. Because at the heart, the, the thing that motivates the devil is just this desire to be not only God, but above God. To become even the God of God. For God to be subservient to him. That's exactly what he's proposing. And, of course, uh, let us elaborate this a little bit. <laughs> what 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 is what is actually what is he actually saying? He will give him these kingdoms and powers and, and the glory of them if he would worship him, if he would uh, submit to him, if he would if he would follow him. Here, what we have is a proposal, is a temptation that implies Satan was to make use of Jesus as he made use of Alexander the Great and of the Caesars and of the Nebuchadnezzars of history to do through him what he has done through them. You see? He wants to turn Jesus into a, a military, violent, aggressive, destructive, conqueror of the kingdoms of the world. That's what he's saying. Uh, which ultimately constitutes the strongest temptation. I mean, when everything is offered to you. Not $20,000, not even trillions of dollars. What he offers here is total glory total dominion. I mean, the whole thing. There's no more powerful temptation of that for man's ambition. And throughout history, we have seen men selling their souls to this design and pursuing it to the very end, the destruction of all things. With this in mind, we need to run now to... Um, another scripture Psalm chapter 2 and we'll be moving more quickly now uh, Psalm 2 do you remember these words I'm reading from verse 7 and 8 I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. Isn't this amazing? I mean, we have just read in Matthew chapter 4 
a temptation that sounded like this. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all of these things I will give you, the kingdoms of the world and their glory, if you will fall down and worship me. But here we have, that's the temptation of Satan. Here we have the promise of the Father. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You see? You see the difference? (laughs) This is a promise. The Father will give to His Son the ends of the earth, the nations of the world. In what terms, we will see in just a moment. The other one, it may sound similar, but it's actually a temptation for a, a violent conquering of the world. While the type of conquering that God is talking about uh, here implies a humiliation on the part of the Son. To see that, please uh, go with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 42. And again, we must move quickly. Uh, Isaiah 42. Speaking about verse 5 through verse 10. And perhaps the most important words are the very beginning ones. Thus saith God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched out, uh, stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open their eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praises to carved images. Behold, the former things I have come to pass, new things I declare. Before the spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea, and all that is in it, you coastlands, and you inhabitants of them. Why this joy? Why this worldwide rejoicing because here we have the words of the Father to the Son. And again, a promise is made. Just like in Psalm 2. Uh, What is the promise? Verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness because all of this scripture is messianic. This is speaking of Christ. The Messiah was to come. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Who is the covenant of the people? Is the Lord Jesus. <laughs> as a light to the Gentiles. Who is the light of the Gentiles? The Lord Jesus. To do what? 
to conquer, to exploit, to destroy, to massacre. Oh no, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is a work of salvation, not destruction. And it needs humiliation to accomplish, humility to accomplish it. But it is for the good of humanity, not for the destruction of humanity. And please go with me to Isaiah chapter 49, another messianic scripture. These are not prophets of evil. These are the prophets of God. And what they reveal is a, a, a plan, a design, a purpose, completely different <laughs> from the one that uh, was fabricated by the devil. So 49, we have the same thing. This is again the Father speaking to the Son, or God speaking to the coming Messiah, to His own servant, the Anointed One. Verse 5, Now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, so that Israel is gathered to Him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, He says, Now, Look at it, here are these words. This is the Father speaking to the Son, to the incarnate Son. It is too small a thing for you that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's like you're too glorious to be only the Savior of Israel. I want to give you more. <laughs> um, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles so that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their, their Holy One, to whom? To Him whom man despises. To Him whom the nation abhors. To the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. And He has chosen you. Oh my. <laughs> These are heavy words. Magnificent words. These are the words, prophetic words, from the Father to the Incarnate Son. That it says... Uh, as the heart of the Father is in the exaltation of the Son. <laughs> and the heart of the Son is the exaltation of the Father. And the whole Trinity operates like that. Each person exalts the other in this amazing Trinity where everyone is humbled, but at the same time, is humble, and yet everyone is exalted in, hum in the humility of the Trinity. And so the Father says, it's too small a thing for you just to save Israel. I want to give you more. I want to make of you a Savior for all the nations. For all the nations. Now this comes from out of the heart of the love of God. Because He sees the nations as lost. In desperate need of redemption. The enemy has completely different thoughts about the nations. He sees the nations as an opportunity to conquer. 
to grab, to use, exploit, dominate, destroy. That's the heart of the devil. The heart of God is completely different. It's the very opposite. Again, would you go to Isaiah chapter 52? Chapter 53 of Isaiah, we know very well. You know, the one who begins, who has believed our report, verse 1, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. We, we know that, that's about Jesus. <laughs> the, the one who was going to be despised, rejected of men, men of sorrows. This is Isaiah chapter 53. But the very preceding texts uh, or uh, verses, look at 52 verse 13. Behold my servant, this is again God speaking of His incarnate Son. They will come one day as the Messiah. <laughs> Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. You see, <laughs> the Father in His humility wants to exalt the Son. and says, He will be exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so His visage was marred more than any man, speaking of his, of his humiliation, and his form more than the sons of men, speaking of the cross, of the torture, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Again, the promise that he will save the nations. The sprinkling of nations indicates the purification, the renewal, the regeneration, the salvation of the nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they, they had not heard, they shall consider. With Christ, <laughs> they will not see uh, another of these world conquerors. <laughs> he will be different. His kingdom will be completely different from theirs. This is a kingdom of grace a kingdom of love, a kingdom of salvation. And no king has ever seen anything, seen anything like it, like this. So, in the light of his sacrifice, so well described in Isaiah 53, if we read Isaiah 55, again, wonderful verses here. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. <laughs> you have no money to buy? I give you this for free. I give you this for free. Uh, yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. <laughs> Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Here's the, the appealing, the message of God to those who are lost to come and know His salvation, which is holy by grace. And it would be wonderful to read the whole passage, but, but we can't because we must run to the Gospel of John and again uh, see something else that's very important. Um, again, John chapter 6 um, you remember what happened when Christ fed the multitudes? 
uh, thousands by multiplying bread and fish. Now notice their reaction. Verse 14 and 15. Then those men who had seen the sign that Jesus did said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now these are important passages that have a lot to do with what we're talking about. What are, what, what are the people doing? They don't recognize Jesus for the one that we have just read about in Isaiah as the servant of God who was going to humble himself for the salvation of men and women that are lost. They don't see him that way. They see him as a powerful a worker of miracles. And they say, he's the Messiah. He can do all these tricks. He can do all of these miracles. He has such mighty power. So you know what? We need to make him king. We need to take him to Jerusalem and make him king. Now, what would have happened had they done that? War. War. The uh, Judaic war that started in uh, a few years later in 66 would have begun now. Because Christ still had thousands of men that followed him, that applauded him, that esteemed him. He just fed thousands of them. He could count probably on the whole of Galilee, <laughs> ready to fight for him with swords and knives and spears. And if they had taken him to Jerusalem and set him on that throne by force, they would have started a war against Rome. But they were certain that with Jesus, they were, they were going to succeed. And what did Jesus say when he was before Pilate? He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my own would fight for me. My servants would fight for me. But because my kingdom is not of this world, it's not like the kingdoms you, you've been bringing about, Throughout history, my kingdom is different. Then mine will not fight for me. So he told Peter, put that sword away. This must happen. This must happen. The last passage I would ask you to read, if you would, uh, is John chapter 13. And we'll end there. And now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, 
He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them out with a towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Why is Peter saying that? Because Peter has a certain view of God. God is the Most High. He cannot conceive a God who will lower himself down and become the servant of man. He can't conceive it. He cannot cannot accept it. To him, that's not... uh, that's not dignity. That's not, that's not dignity. Uh, kings are not servants in this world. Rulers are not servants in the world. Uh, rulers dominate. They're way up there. But here, what he sees is something completely different. He's not ready for it. And he does not accept it. You shall never wash my feet. You see, in a certain way, this was a, uh, somewhat of a, a good human sentiment. He has such a high view of Christ, the glorious Christ, the Son of God, Christ divine, Christ God, uh, um, uh, who made himself flesh, who took himself, who took on, on himself flesh for our own salvation. But there was an aspect of God that he did not see, the humility of God. Jesus answered him, if, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That is, what I am communicating to you, the spirit that I am communicating to you, the message that I am communicating to you, is not a marginal aspect here. This is the essence of it. If you don't understand this and don't accept this, you cannot be a Christian. You have no part with me. Your spirit is not with my spirit. Simon Peter at that point said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash me whole. Wash me whole. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Because Jesus had also washed Judah's feet. Judah said, yet to leave the room. (laughs) He will leave it in just a moment. But Jesus had also washed Judah's feet. Which is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Not only that God would humble himself and become the servants of men to wash their feet, but he would actually wash the feet of his own traitors. Of, of, of men that were demon-possessed. That's mind-blowing. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken, their gar- taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have what just done? You call me teacher and Lord. And... You say, well, for so I am. You see, 
He says, I am your teacher, O Lord. I am your God. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who has sent is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So this is the gospel. It is a gospel of the humiliation of God who humbled himself, lowered himself, emptied himself, or gave up the use, the, the, the use of his divine attributes to give himself over uh, to his own, in the hands of his own enemies. That he would give his life for our sake, taking upon himself our own sin, the responsibility of all the evil that we have done, to pay for that evil completely, totally, so that we may be forgiven by the God of the the whole universe, who then would become our Father. Uh, These are two different views of life. And now we could elaborate, and perhaps we will, if the Lord gives us an opportunity, this coming Sunday, we'll see how he leads. Uh, there are actually two kingdoms that are going on at this very time. Uh, there's a kingdom that the, the Bible would identify as the kingdom of the Antichrist. There is a spirit that has been going on the whole time that is working underneath that, is, that wants to go in that direction, the creation of a one world government, one world dominion, a dominion of evil. Uh, the Bible will speak of that in Revelation chapter 17, uh, 13, 17. Um, and it's very clear that at some point in history, as Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there will be a time when God will lift up what now is using to restrain the manifestation of this one world dominion. Have you noticed how these civilizations have come and gone? Because every time they went to the, they reached the top, then they turned completely evil. But God always put an end to the design. Always put an end to the design. Uh, you can see it all through history. But the Bible says that a time will come when God will not stop that anymore. And when He will lift up that uh, restraint that He calls it, and a lot of discussion about what that dis- restraint is, um, we're not very much interested in all those, you know, the, the speculations. We're interested in, in the, the essence of it. But then, 
the time will come for the manifestation of the ultimate civilization, the last civilization attempted by man. And God will let that happen. Uh, when that happens, and perhaps it's happening these very days, from what we're seeing. We cannot prophesy it. We cannot put out dates. We don't know. But everything seems to be working in that direction. Uh, and you know why God will let that happen? Because that's the only way to bring about the end of history as we have known it. There's a very important passage in Genesis chapter 15 where God says to Moses, uh, God says to Abraham, I cannot give you the land right now because the sin of the Amorites have still not reached uh, its climax. But when it will reach that uh, full-fledged manifestation of evil, then I will give you the land to your descendants. That's why he destroyed the Canaanites, because they have become completely corrupted. And that's a picture of what will happen in the end. When the time has come, God will lift up the, re the restraint that has kept the spirit of the Antichrist to take full control of the world. And he will let the world turn into a one-world domination. In that moment, uh, the sin of humanity will, have re will reach such a point of evil that God in his very nature will have to intervene, will intervene. Because God is merciful, you see. He's merciful, you see. <laughs> and he's not going to judge the earth until that happens. The full level of sinfulness of man is manifested. But when that is manifested, he will intervene and bring about the end of all things. In the meantime, we have these two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ which is very different from the kingdom of this world. <laughs> and blessed are those who are part of this kingdom, uh, which is about and operates with a completely different uh, mindset and, and doctrine and spirit, because this is the kingdom of the gospel. This is the kingdom of the gospel of Christ. We're not about conquering. We're not about exploiting. We're not about... Uh, slaughtering people we're about the salvation of men and women <laughs> so uh, how we spend our life here or in Italy uh, the prayers that we pray uh, the, the efforts that we make the contributions we give why do we do all that well because we have been saved by the Lord and he placed in us his spirit so that we desire for others to be saved, to know Him. Now, this Spirit that is among us and in us is nowhere to be found in the world. Nowhere to be found in the world. There is a conflict of the ages that has been taking place. And blessed are those who belong to His kingdom. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.